First off, we just want to say happy Mother's Day. Happy, happy Mother's Day. We recognize that this day is a day of joy, yet it's also, uh, in this fallen world, a day of sorrow and pain for some. As you perhaps long to be a mother, or have lost children, or have a mother who's not a believer, yet growing older and older. So, um, with that, we just say, in all of your, in all of your delight and all of your sorrow, happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. You've all been there, right? You're, you're walking down the street and you're enjoying the, the coolness of the air and the warmth of the sun that you have on these late spring days. And you see this couple walking towards you and you you see them and you think that this can't actually be happening, right? And so you, you kind of watch as they're coming closer and closer and you can't help but to think, what is that girl doing with that guy? <laughs> Obviously, they, they can't have anything in common when you look at them. Obviously, she's too good for him or he's way too good for her. This, this must be some act of penance that they have. They must have done something wrong in a past relationship, and they're trying to make up for it in this one. And as they come closer and closer, you, you realize that you're, you're staring at them, and they, they too notice that, and so you kind of turn your head and walk this way. But as you're walking away, you can't help but to think, what are those two doing together? It doesn't make sense. Then on top of that, they actually seem to be enjoying themselves. That's what really makes it confusing. Same thing we see in our text here today. You have Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Who is he with? Wretched sinners, thankfully, like you, like me. So with that in mind, let us go ahead and turn to our text. Matthew chapter 9, we're going to be doing verses 9 down through 17. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in his house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can a wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? 
The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But the new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, it has been our prayer all morning, and it still is, that you would make yourself known. We, we have nothing apart from you, God. We have nothing. We pray that you will come and, and through your word that you will convict us of our sins and let us see the hope that we have in the gospel. Let us see the hope that we have in your son, God. Could this not just be another Sunday? But could this be the beginning of something great? Amen. Brief outline of where we're going to be going here. The main idea that we're going to be driving home is that Jesus Christ came. Jesus Christ came to call and to save sinners. Jesus Christ came to call and to save sinners. And we're going to be looking at this in three different sections. The first part is just verse 9. We're going to be looking at the call of Matthew. The call of Matthew. Then after that, verses 10 through 13, we're going to be looking at the fellowship. Who is Jesus associating with? And then finally, the revolution, verses 14 through 17. Can we tweak the way things are done, or do we, does it have to be completely new? And we'll see the new work of Christ. So main idea that we're going to be driving home is that Jesus Christ has come to call and to save sinners. And it sounds elementary, I know that, but as we go through the text, you'll see the implications of this, that Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, has come to call you, to call sinners, to repentance, to call follow Him. That's not just something elementary, but it changes and it turns upside down the whole world that we live in. And it shatters every preconceived notion you have of righteousness. So with that, let's go to this first verse. Verse 9, uh, the call of Matthew. Uh, let's, let's just read it again. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, religion, it just boils down. All religions, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, they all relate down to two main things. Sin and the sinner. How can we absolve sin? How can we get rid of sin? What do we to do with sin so that we as a sinner can have fellowship again with God? So Hinduism, Buddhism, reincarnation... You do good as a grasshopper, you come back as a frog, or you come back as something a little bit higher, and you're able to absolve, little by little, your own sin. And in due time, there might not be hope in this life, but in due time, perhaps, 
you can come to a state of nothingness. Or in Islam, if the scales of your righteous good deeds outweigh the scales of your wicked deeds just by a little bit, then, then you are justified. The natural mind, the way we think, we think we must have penance, we must do something to pay for our own sin. It's the way we are wired. And it's completely contrary to the gospel. We must pay penance, we think, and then we can be justified. But what do we see here in the text? What do we see? Matthew, sitting at the tax booth, wallowing in his own sin and his own greed, and Christ comes to him. Matthew here, he's a publican, he's a tax collector, he's He's not only betrayed his own people, but he has betrayed the very people of God. So it's bad enough that you're stealing, but you're stealing from your own people and you're giving it to the heathen emperor Tiberius in Rome. And there's nothing that wasn't taxed as you look through the annals of, of this first century history. There is nothing that wasn't taxed. You have a good day fishing in the Sea of Galilee? Great, Matthew's there at the docks to welcome you in. You have a bumper crop and you actually might have enough food to make it through the winter? Well, good, Matthew's happy. He'll be there as you bring your crops into the market. You don't have a good crop? Well, that's fine. Matthew will still take his share. Don't worry about that. He'll be okay. He'll just tax your land instead of your crops. Pedestrians? Taxed. Pack animals? Taxed. Roads and bridges? Taxed. You're seeing a theme here. Admission to the market? Taxed. Wheels? Taxed. Axles? Taxed. Everything that you sold was taxed. Everything that you bought was taxed. Men like Matthew were seen as such criminals that they couldn't even go into court and be called on as a witness because they knew he was a perpetual liar and a thief. It's his fellow countrymen, they looked at him the way we would look at an abortion doctor. Their craft is evil, and their job is to oppress. Yet, here is Christ. Here is Christ coming to the outcast, coming to Matthew. Not when Matthew is repenting. No, no, no. Matthew is still sitting in his tax booth. And here comes Christ, knowing full well all of the meals that children missed because Matthew took a little bit more than he should have. All the inheritance that wasn't passed from father to son because it went from father to Matthew. And Jesus comes and he commands him to follow him. But didn't, didn't Jesus know of his sin? Well, certainly there must be some, some kind of penance, right? There must be something that Matthew must do, but no, 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 what do you see? Jesus came and he called Matthew just as he was. The wretched sinner that he was. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, God showed his love for us, in Romans 5, verse 8, God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, we see, thankfully, it's not only Matthew 
but it's also you. So Matthew is here thinking, Rabbi, Rabbi, if you had only known what I had done. And here you are thinking, Christ, I know you're calling me to follow you, but if you had only known what I have done, if you had only known of my infidelity, of that abortion that nobody knows about, not even my spouse, If you'd only known of my struggles with same-sex attraction, well, then certainly you wouldn't call me to, to follow you. Certainly there must be a mistake. I have to get myself right before God. I have to make penance and do what is right before God will accept me. But here lies the amazing piece of the gospel. While all the other religions, they want you to pay penance to change your own self, that God might accept you. Here comes Christ sitting and coming to a man who's sitting in his tax booth. And he comes to him as he is. And with two words, he changes everything. Follow me. So let's look at, at Matthew's response here. Right at the end of verse 9 it says, And he rose and followed him. It's pretty simple. <laughs> Uh, in Luke's account, you see Matthew kind of being a little bit humble here. Matthew's obviously the author of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, you see that Luke actually says that he left everything behind and got up and followed him. There's no hesitation. There's no indication whatsoever that he, he contemplated, he vacillated, he, he wondered, what would this cost me? No, he heard the call of Christ and he gave his treasure and he gave his life. And tradition tells us that he, after the crucifixion of Christ, he goes down to Ethiopia where he is there beheaded. And we're reminded that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. But what about you, right? You're the one sitting here, not Matthew. It's not the first century and you guys are not tax collectors. Um, and you actually may not be called to leave your job, as Matthew did. And you may not be called to die the martyr's death, as Matthew was. But those are just the circumstances, the outside ancillary circumstances. The call to faithfulness is still the same. The heart of the call is still the same. So who else is going to reach this city, my friends? You go to Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, they have missionaries. Go up the coast in Mogadishu in Somalia, they have missionaries. Go to Moscow, they're receiving missionaries. Go to Chennai, Southeast India, they're receiving missionaries. Who are the missionaries to this town? To Rochester. Who's sending missionaries? Nobody. Who is the missionaries to Rochester? As Christ has called you to come and follow him. You. You are the missionaries. And sure, you might not be called to, to leave your job. But you are called to be faithful, just as Matthew was called to be faithful. Just as an aside, when we, when we see the faithfulness of Matthew, he's just mirroring Christ's faithfulness to God the Father. So let's, let's not forget that. You look at John 5, 
Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees His Father doing. And whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And go down to several more verses. Verse 30, He says, I can do nothing of my own initiative. So we see the Son's faithfulness to the Father, and nearing that we see Matthew's faithfulness to Christ as well. So friends, you may not be called to leave your job. You may not be called to die a martyr's death. And tomorrow you can be there hanging piggybacks or flushing IV sites or wondering what's so epic about this thing that they call epic. But your call to faithfulness is no different than this tax collector that we see eventually give his life in the first century. That call to you, young and old, rich and poor, is still the same. To be faithful to Christ. And God in His sovereignty, He could have had you live at any span in history, but He has you living now. And He he could have had you living anywhere in the world, but He has you living here. Why? To be faithful to Him in this city. So that people who have been created to worship Him might actually worship Him rather than hating Him and reviling Him. This is no accident that you've been called. And it's no accident that you live in this city at this time. You are God's missionaries to this city. If not you, who is it going to be? So the main idea that we're working under here, let's just take a step back, is that Jesus Christ has come, and He's come to call and to save sinners. In the first part, we looked at this call of Matthew. And we see that it's not just meant for Matthew, and that's a great story, but no, it's the same call that's meant for you and for me and for all of us, to be faithful wherever God has you, at home with the children or at work, wherever it might be, but to be faithful. Now we're going to be looking at fellowship, verses 10 through 13. Let's go back to the text here. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And Matthew, we see that he has obeyed the call to follow Christ and immediately he's invited Christ and his disciples over to his home for a little get-together. And who do we see here? Who is gathered in the home of Matthew? Tax collectors and sinners. And when you hear sinners, just let your mind wander for a bit. And it probably hasn't wandered far enough of what, what, what the Matthew is meaning here. It's like going to be akin to going to a flop house or a drug house here in town. It's just a place where everybody who's marginalized by society can go and do what they want to do to be gratified and not be condemned. And who do we see coming? 
Christ coming into the midst of this. And how is he relating to them? He's not lecturing them. He's not saying I'm better than you. He's not lording it over them. He's not keeping his distance from them so that he can kind of do what he's supposed to do, but he doesn't want to be awkward and actually relating to them. So just kind of be in the same room, but keep his distance in case the Pharisees or other disciples see. He's not doing that. What is he doing? He's actually reclining with them. And you almost get the impression that he's enjoying himself with the tax collectors and with the sinners. And there is Christ, the one who has created everything. And he's enjoying himself. And this, this should be no surprise, actually. When you, you think of just the flow that we have here in Matthew, we, you have the Sermon on the Mount where you're talking about the life of discipleship and, and it wraps up in chapter 7. And then immediately, who is Christ? Who is Jesus associating with? He comes down the mountain? Lepers. And then a Gentile, a centurion, one of the armies that's oppressing the local people. Christ is associating with him, and he's actually it's fascinating. He's bowing down to Christ and recognizing the king of all kings. So Christ is associating with him, and you're getting little glimpses, little pictures. When Matthew is constantly talking about the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what does it look like? It looks like lepers being healed, centurions coming to faith. And then Jesus is associating with Peter's mother-in-law, a woman. Jesus is associating with her, and then he has this little, this little, uh, little talk about discipleship, where he, where he has people that want to follow him. And they say, "I'll follow you anywhere." Jesus, he goes, "Well, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man doesn't have any place to lay his head." And another disciple says, "Well, I want to follow you, but let me first go bury my father." And Jesus is showing the life of discipleship and what that looks like. And he says, no, 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 no. Let the dead bury their own dead. You must follow me. And that's the life of discipleship, just like the Sermon on the Mount. Then we get these little more glimpses of what the kingdom of heaven looks like, where he's, he's calming the sea and he's hanging out with the uh, people who are demon-possessed. And then Jesus, is, again, he's associating with the paralytic, the poor, the, who lived off handouts his whole life. There's Jesus. Come, come. Come a little bit closer. Not fleeing. Not running away. Inviting them in. Being one to whom they would want to come. So it's not as though Jesus is just, he's a good teacher, and then he... He goes in these areas of social all-caste and then retreats back onto his suburbia and has a great life. No, no, no. His whole life, he's born in a stable. And his mother, they all knew she wasn't yet wed. He's born in a stable, impoverished. He's here. He's told how many times growing up, Oh, you mother, you're illegitimate, Jesus. His whole life is among the social outcasts. His ministry is among the social outcasts. It wasn't just a program that they did. It was his whole life was spent with them. So we look and we see these actors that are coming together in this scene. A life that's entirely spent in, uh, uh, this among the social outcasts. We have Matthew coming in 
And he's actually delighted to have someone like Christ. And then you have the disciples, and they typically get a bad rap. But it's fascinating. You see him, the disciples are reclining with him. Here's Peter and Andrew, James and John. They're fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. Matthew is a tax collector in their town. How much do you think he had stolen from them over the years? Stolen from their father, Zebedee. And there they are, reclining with him at the table. But then you see the Pharisees coming. And they're, they're not there to learn. They're not there to recline. They're simply there to accuse. And what they see is utterly appalling to them. And they're thinking, why would anyone who, who knows God or loves God or does what is right, why would anyone like that associate with those people whom God hates? This man who he claims to be the king of kings, the king of the kingdom of heaven, yet he defiles himself with those whom he associates with. That's what the Pharisees are saying. And Christ responds to them with this phrase, go and learn, and it's a rabbinic phrase. And you see that they're always learning and always learning, yet never understanding. And what are they to learn? Ironically, what are they to learn? Their own scriptures. That's what he's telling them to learn. You see, he quotes Hosea 6, 6. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And Hosea is a, a prophet during the northern, in the northern kingdom during the reign of Jeroboam. This time of utter defilement. And Hosea is decrying the hypocrisy of those who would worship the false idols, who would uphold social injustice and then go to the temples and make sacrifices and look righteous. So Jesus is actually equating the Pharisees to those pagan idolaters of the Old Testament. There the Pharisees are, breaking all the commandments, oppressing the poor. Yet, what are they doing? They're going to the temple making all the sacrifices. Why? Because they want to they want to look good before men instead of being justified before God. And you see, when we, look, when we look at this narrative, it's easy to think who we would have been. Certainly we would have been the disciples, right? Reclining at the table. We wouldn't have been the Pharisees, right? But let me ask, what social gutters have you gone into for the sake of the gospel? Did, did you come here because you wanted a nice, safe church? A place where your children won't be influenced by those who need the grace of God? Is our, is our ministry different than the Lord's? Are we better than He is? Is it for the others? Is it for others, other churches in town to reach out to the marginalized, the fatherless, the homeless? And it's actually our, our misunderstanding of the gospel that makes it so easy for us to be preoccupied with keeping up appearances. No, 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 no weakness here. Don't come too close. Everything's fine. And it's our misunderstanding of this gospel that keeps us from going into these places that we see Christ going into. Because when we realize that we too 
are just spiritual beggars, just like they are, just like anybody else apart from Christ, well, then we're all on the same playing field. And outside circumstances, well, they don't really matter at all. So this life of following Christ in your job, in this city, it's, it's actually rather easy. You don't have to, thankfully, you don't have to open a drug house or a flop house. Um, you could just befriend the guy or gal at work that nobody talks to. Invite him to lunch. Invite him over. Share the gospel with him. If you don't, who's going to? Nobody. Before we move on to the last point here, just to recap, may not give. Jesus Christ has come to call and to save sinners. And I hope you're seeing that the implications of this are not just elementary, but it's devastating to everything that we used to hold on to. We've seen the call of Matthew and how he's faithful to give up everything and to go with Christ. And we see Christ having fellowship with the tax collectors and the sinners, the lowest of the low. Who is Christ there? He's reclining at the table with them. Now finally here we're going to see the revolution. Let's read verses 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and the worst tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilt, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. And here is the revolution. And that in Christ, everything that you once held to be true is thrown to the side. Now you see that it's not only the, the Pharisees, but now actually the, the disciples of John the Baptist who are coming. They're the one they follow, John the Baptist. He's in a dungeon from Herod. And they come to him, and yet here is Christ feasting on a day that they should have had fasting. And in this time, they would have fasting. The Jews would fast on two days, on Thursday and then on Monday, in correlation, according to tradition, that, Jesus, uh, that Moses, second time he went up the mountain, he went up on Thursday, came back down on Monday. So out of reverence for Moses and the law, they would fast on Thursday and then on Monday, two days a week. And so they would fast not because they were broken over their sin. Not so that they would be weak, so that the strength of Christ and the strength of God would be shown through them. Rather, they fasted. Why? Penance. Penance. You're going to be feasting on a day when we should be fasting. Don't you know, you who you are associating with those, don't you know you should be fasting? And they're wondering, what's... What is the sign of your what is the sign of your righteousness? How do you how are you showing your devotion to God? 
You should be fasting today, and yet you're re reclining with these sinners and these tax collectors in Christ and saying, well, this is actually how we show my devotion to God. Is that I am reclining with the tax collectors and the sinners. And this is the revolution that in Christ, you cannot patch the old garment. You cannot use the old wineskin. There cannot be a reforming of the old, for in Christ all things are new. Gone are the days of the temple sacrifice, and gone are the days of fasting for your own penance. The new wine of the kingdom of God that's been preached throughout Matthew, this new wine of the kingdom of God cannot be held in the old forms. The temple and all of its sacrifices was this massive spotlight pointing right to Christ. And in the hardness of their hearts, they missed it. They missed it. And all of this, all of Christ's answer, here is from one question, one question about fasting. And they get a response about bridegrooms and garments and wineskins and all of the such. We see that everything that they held on to was coming to an end. It was finding its fulfillment in Christ. The fasting had finally turned into feasting in Christ. So as you, in, in closing, so as you are going out as heralds of the gospel in Rochester, you are a part of this same revolution that's going forth. A revolution that is still turning upside down every notion of piety and righteousness that we've ever known. For our righteousness and our piety is not through penance, but in Christ alone. Through His suffering, through His righteousness, not through ours. So we see this revolution. It didn't begin in the temple in Jerusalem or the, the schools of Athens or the citadels in Rome. No, it began in the shores of the Sea of Galilee with a sinner sitting at his booth, robbing from people, and Christ calling him to follow me. That's how the revolution began. And the revolution continues with you tomorrow, going to work, sharing the gospel, calling other people to follow Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we... We thank you that you have called wretched sinners to yourself. That is us. I pray that we would, we would never think of ourselves so, so righteous or so lofty that we would see ourselves as anything but that. God, I pray that we would only find ourselves in you, and our righteousness in you, our identity in you, God. And with that, I pray that you would give us boldness, that you would give us passion, that you would give us endurance as we realize that we are to call, we have been called to follow you and we are to follow you as heralds of the gospel in this city where you have placed us. Dear God, could you work a miraculous work over this next week as we seek to be faithful to your call to follow you.
Amen.